Thank you, guys. And as you get seated, you guys can go and open up your Bibles if you want, or uh, on your phones, or whatever, you, whatever you're using these days. Open up to Ephesians 1. We're continuing on. We're actually going to wrap up the first chapter of Ephesians today. And we've got a little bit of a shift in gears here. Uh, the last three weeks, we've been in basically breaking down one sentence from Paul that covered 11 verses. Uh, long sentence, right? But we've And basically what we saw was Paul just giving praise to God for the work of the entire Trinity ensuring the Ephesian salvation. There's this glorious, glorious praise, praise to God for his work in saving his church. And now Paul's transitioning from this prayer he offers directly to God, and now he's telling the Ephesians what he's been praying for them. And he shifts his focus a little bit from the saving work of God to what that saving work has produced in the Ephesians, right? So it's a little, a little bit of a shift. I'm just gonna read the passage for you guys. Let's kind of get it in our heads. And then we'll kind of look and see what we have here. Because this is an important passage for us. Because really what it does is, as Paul makes this shift, is it helps us to understand what God loves and values in his church and how it is we actually get there. Which is kind of important for us as a new church plant, charting a course and setting out on, on a new work. We need want to know what God loves and values in his church and what we need to actually do that. Because there's lots of times when that doesn't actually end up happening. So we need this. So let's get into it. Let's read, starting in Ephesians 1, verse 15. He starts off by saying, for this reason. So he's building on what he just did, which was just all, because of all this saving work that God has done for you. Okay, that's what he's kind of building on. For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which you have been called, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let me pray for us. Lord, we, uh, we thank you for your word. Thank you that we uh, get to sit under it and hear from you this morning, and we pray that that is what would happen here. We pray by the power of your spirit that my uh, words, as flawed uh, as, as the vessel is that they come out of, would ultimately be your words through the power of your spirit, and that your people would have ears to hear, uh, Lord, that we would be able to, to comprehend uh, the goodness that you have for us today in your word. We pray this all in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, so the first thing Paul does is he says, he tells the Ephesians what he's been thanking God for in them. He's been away from the Ephesian church for several years. He planted it, went away for a while, so it's probably been somewhere between five to eight years since he's been there. But he's heard reports from the other people that he knows who've sent who've been there. He's gotten word, and so what he's heard about is their faith and their trust in Jesus and their love for one another, and that's what he gives praise for, right? It got me thinking about um, what do we get excited about and what do churches get excited about? 
What do we love? What do we value? What do we cherish? Because we end up chasing and pursuing what we love, right? What we value. And you see all sorts of different things in, in the church, in the church nowadays, and even if you look back historically. The Roman Catholic Church became what it was because ultimately they ended up valuing political power over anything else. And it became a political institution, really, primarily, more than a religious institution, uh, right? So what we love will end up shaping us. Uh, and so I thought about so many things that the church chases after, right? We chase after numbers, right? The number of people that we get there. That's, that's our mark of success. That's the thing we wanna see. Or the money that comes in and the things that that allows us to do. Maybe it's how polished and how well we do everything. How, how well the performance comes off with things on Sunday morning. Sometimes it's charismatic personalities and teachers. That's clearly not you guys because you're here listening to me. And that's not, that's not, my, not my game. I, I know myself well enough for that, but that is very attractive, right? Sometimes it's buildings and, and those sorts of things. Influence in our community, right? The amount of effect we can have on the, the city around us. Sometimes we just get excited about being excited, right? It's, it's kind of the emotional higher rush we get from being there. Sometimes that's the thing that we love and chase. Sometimes it's just new stuff, right? Whatever's new, the newest thing on the block, the newest way to think about discipleship, the newest songs, the newest this, the newest that, right? There's so many different things we can run and chase. Right? We're, we're a new church plant, right? Right now, everything is kind of new in a way, even a lot of the stuff we're doing is very old at the same time, but us doing it is a very new thing. One day it's not gonna be new and fresh. One day it's gonna just be what we've, we've done, right? And so we need to understand, right, all these different things we can get pulled into chasing and pursuing and valuing and loving is like, hey, this is what the church is about. I've gotta have this thing. I've seen people leave churches for all of these different things at one time or another, right, because of what they valued and they prioritized. But the question we need to be asking is, what does God get excited about with his church? What does he love to see in his church? What does he want to see in them? That's the only thing that matters, it's his church. We don't get to set the agenda for it, he does. And we should want to see in it what he wants to see in it, what he wants to do in it. And that's what we get to see in this passage, right? That's what we get to see through the lens of, of Paul's thankfulness, the Holy Spirit is showing us what God loves and cares about in his church. And it's very, very simple. It's their faith in Jesus and their love for each other. And that's it, that's what Paul is thrilled about. Imagine there's lots of other things he heard about the Ephesian church, but these two things are what gave him joy. And these are the same things he said. He loved this church so deeply, guys. If you go back and read his letter, when he talked in Acts, when he talked to the Ephesian elders when he was leaving, how much he loved and cared for this church. And like, this is the thing. He's like, this is their, praise God. Like, God is taking care of them because they're trusting Christ and they love each other. So, we need to talk about this, and I'm gonna talk about love a little bit later, so put, it, put a pin in that. We're gonna talk about faith for quite a while first because the love is really gonna flow out of what we see with the faith. So I'm not forgetting it. We're just gonna come back to it later, but we need to talk about this faith. What is this faith in the Lord Jesus? Because uh, it's one of the faith is one of those words that we use all the time in the church, but we don't necessarily stop and think about what it actually is, uh, and that matters, right? Couple things. One thing is that faith is not works. We talked about this a little bit last week. Faith is not something that you gin up and something that you perform 
or do. Scripture always contrasts it to works. Faith is the opposite of works. Works is you performing. Faith is trusting in the performance of somebody else. So that's one thing we can say about faith. The other thing we can say about this faith is, in particular, that it is trust in the work of Jesus, not anything else. Faith always has an object. Faith is something that connects you to something else. Faith itself really doesn't matter. Faith gets its value from what it connects you to. So the object of this faith is Jesus. But what does it mean to believe? What does it mean to have faith? This was a really big question during the Reformation because as the reformers were pushing back on the Roman Catholic's doctrine of basically you are justified by faith and works, right? You needed both of these things. And the reformers were pushing back saying, no, we are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The Roman Catholic Church pushed back and they said, well, that can't be, right? Because anybody can just believe. The demons believe, Satan believes, and it doesn't save him. They go to a passage like James. James talks about how you know, you believe in God and, you, oh, great, good for you. The demons do too, right? So they go to that. They're like, well, look, the demons believe. So it can't, it can't be faith alone. And so what the reformers is, they know, like, you don't understand what biblical faith is. What, what the demons have and what biblical faith is, this faith in Christ are two, different, are two different things. And this is really important for us to understand, right? And because back then you did everything in Latin, in theology, they said biblical faith consists of these three, there's three components to it, right? So these three fancy Latin words. Notitia, ascensus, and fiducia. Don't have to remember those, we're gonna talk about them, right? So, so, and a lot of it's very basic. Notitia is just, it's just knowing, right? Like you can't believe something you don't know. Seems like pretty common sense, right? If you don't know something exists, you can't believe in it. Fair enough, I don't think that needs much elaboration, right? A census, that's where we get the word assent, right, to, to agree with something. So this, the second component of faith is not just that we know it exists, we have to agree that it is true, right? Like, I know, I know that there's something called a UFO, that doesn't necessarily believe that I believe it's true, right? That, that's two different, that's another component of faith. So you have to know the thing, and you have to agree that it's true, right? If we stop there, Satan and the demons believe. Right, they 100% they're there on this. They know Jesus, read Jesus, read the gospels, right? They know Jesus very well. They recognize him real quick, right? And they know who he is, right? They know he's the son of God, like no problems here. They probably know this better than we do a lot of times, right? So the key thing is the third one, the third one. Fiducia, it's a weird word, right? But we get a word from this that you guys might be familiar with. We don't use it super commonly, but fiduciary. Fiduciary, it's a word we describe to, de- we use to describe a certain kind of relationship. And um, it happens a lot in the financial sector, but probably the easiest way to think about it is with a lawyer. If you have a lawyer working for you, you are in a fiduciary relationship because that lawyer has an ethical and legal requirement to serve your best interests, right? And because of that, it's a relationship of trust. That's the idea of a fiduciary relationship. I can trust my lawyer with all this stuff about me. I can put, put my life in their hands because they are obligated to work towards my good, right? So ultimately what fiducia is and what they were getting at and what the, the key defining factor of biblical faith is trust. It's trust, it's dependence. It's dependence. I like the picture of a boat for this. So I've used forever, 
But I can stand on a dock and look at a boat, and I can say, that's a boat. That's, that's the first thing, right, in the tissue. It's a boat. Second thing is I can, I can say, hey, that boat will float, you know, and I bet I can get in that boat, and I can row, and it will get me where I'm going. That's the second thing, right? That's this is census. I, I believe in the boat. Fiducia is when you actually get in the boat and start going, right? You've put your weight into this thing. You're now trusting this thing with your life. You're trusting it to do what you say you believe it can do. That is what biblical faith is. This is what Christians, Christians are those who bet all of themselves on the work of Jesus. We don't just look at that boat from the dock and say, yep, that's Jesus, he can do all this stuff. We put the weight of our whole selves in this life and eternity in that boat, right? We're fully, wholly dependent on Jesus and nothing else. That's the idea of biblical faith, right? That's the faith that Paul is talking about. Not bringing in other things, not Jesus plus other stuff, not Jesus plus what you can do, not the boat plus you swimming, just the boat of Jesus. Does that make sense? So that's, that's what biblical faith is, right? And so I wanna kinda keep pressing on because Paul makes a pretty quick shift after that first verse from talking about what he sees God doing in them to telling them what he's praying for God to keep doing, right? What he wants for them, right? He thanks God for something, then he moves to asking for something for, for them. All right, so let me read that again for you guys. Picking up right at the end of 16, he says, remembering you in my prayers, and this is what he prays for, that God, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and a revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might. Now, what's interesting about this is Paul doesn't pray like, okay, they've got the trust Jesus part down. They're loving each other, that's good. Okay, time for the next step. Time for the next rung on the ladder. Let's, let's move on to the next thing. There's nothing in here about what to do next. There's actually nothing for them to do at all. Paul really just, it's just really one giant request with a whole lot of words around it. It's basically just a request that they would understand what has been done for them. That they would be able to comprehend and wrap their minds and their hearts around the reality of all that they have been given in Christ. Is what Paul is after for them. When he looks at what he sees enough, he's not looking for like a next new thing, right? He wants them to just keep going. Like, just keep doing this. Keep trusting Christ, keep loving one another. And what, what do they need to do that? There's no, there's no next thing. That is the Christian life. That is what the church does. There's not a next level to hit. It's, that is the path. And so he's thinking, what do they need to keep going? What do they need to not go to something else? Another thing would not be progress, it would be a distraction from what they're actually called to do. So what Paul is concerned about is like, what do they need to keep going, to keep pressing on, to not chase other things? He wants them to just excel more in what they've already, what God is already doing in them. So what do they need to do that? What do they need? What they need is to understand what has been given to them. Like phrase after phrase after phrase is about just wrapping their minds around and actually comprehending 
all that they have been given in Christ. And then Paul finally boils it down into the three, three things, right? He wants them to understand the hope of their calling, the riches of their inheritance, and the greatness of God's power. So when you think about how does understanding these three things, how do these facilitate their trust and love? How does this keep them on that path and moving in that direction, right? If God wants to work in us and loves to see in us trust, the key thing we need to trust is to know that the thing we're trusting in is trustworthy, right? Trust is always, it's a risk reward decision, right? If you've ever bet or invested or anything, there's this process of kind of weighing risk and reward. What is the potential payoff of this thing, right? If I put money into this, what can I gain from doing it? And what are the chances that I'll get that payoff, right? So there's this, this upside, what can I gain? But there's also the downside, what am I risking? If I put, if I invest into this thing, what are the chances that it fails? And what do I lose if, if it does? And these things that, that Paul is praying for God to show them and to give them a grasp on tackle both of those aspects of our faith, right? What is there to be gained by our trust in Christ? And is there any risk here? Are we risking, we put our weight in that boat, what are the chances it sinks and fails us, right? So the first thing he does is he tackles the upside, right? Why get into the boat anyway? Why not just stand on the dock and stay here, right? What is to be gained by this trust in Christ? And he captures us with the hope, the hope and the inheritance that we have. He talks about the hope to which we've been called. So biblically, when we use hope, a lot of times we use it almost in the sense of wishing, right? Like, I really hope my team wins. We, we have no way to know, we just really want that to happen and we'd be happier if it does. But it's really kind of a 50-50 proposition. There's no, no kind of air of certainty or anything to it, right? Biblical hope is a little bit different. Biblical hope is more the air of expectation, right? When you say you have a hope, it's actually communicating that you expect this thing will come true. And Paul says he wants them to understand the hope of their calling. Right, the calling part is really big because that ties the hope to all that work of God we were talking about in the last 11 verses. All this work that God did before the beginning of time to call you and select you and choose you and all this kind of stuff, he ties it all into that. It's like, so you can have not just a wish, like, oh, I really hope this is true, but you have an expectation that it's true because it's grounding in the calling of God, all right? So that's the hope part, but then he tells them that he wants them to get a hold of the riches of their glorious inheritance, right? And, and this is so, so easy for us to lose sight of how much is promised to us in Christ. And I'm not gonna read you guys a bunch of passages, but I just went and pulled a bunch of stuff from a bunch of passages and just put together a list just to try to, I want you to just feel the weight of all of it, one after another after another. But this is, this is just some of the things that are wrapped up in the inheritance that is ours in Christ. Our inheritance means that there's gonna be a day when there is no more grief, no more sorrow, no more fear, no more tears. There's gonna be a day when there are no negative emotions and no broken emotions for us anymore. There's gonna be a day when there is no more pain or death we're gonna have perfect bodies that don't betray us and don't ache and don't attack themselves and don't, you know, don't do any of these things, 
that's all going to be gone. We will no more feel any, we will never lose anything. We will never feel loss again. And we will never, never feel lack again. Right? We will have no more unmet desires. All other desires will be good and all will be perfectly satisfied. We'll get to reunite with those who have died in the Lord. There's going to be a reversal of so many painful partings that we've endured and that we will endure more of, right? That are going to come undone. There will be no more guilt or shame and no more fear of future guilt and shame. That's all going to be taken away. There will be no more foolishness and bad decisions that we pay for with consequences, right? I thought about the the verse in Philippians where we're told to think about certain things. We're told to think about what is true and honorable and just and pure and lovely and commendable and excellent and worthy of praise. Our inheritance means that everything in us and everything around us is going to be all of those things. All of those things are going to characterize everything in us and outside us and around us. We won't have to try to think about those things. Those things are the only things that will be. There will be no injustice. There will be no oppression. And we will reign with Christ. I was says we are going to judge angels, right? All of these things, all of these things make up this inheritance. There is nothing bad or dangerous left in it. There, there is nothing negative, and there is nothing good or glorious that's left out. He uses the riches of our inheritance for good reason. It is ridiculously, it's embarrassingly rich, this inheritance that we have. If this reward comes through, we're set for this life and the next life, right? There is nothing else we could possibly need. There's no reason not to put everything into that boat that's taking you to that inheritance and to set sail. Except for one more question we need to answer, right? Can he deliver it? Can he deliver it? If that's the hope, and that's wonderful and great, but can he get me there, right? Will this boat float? Is there anything that's gonna overturn it or wreck it along the way, right? This, this boat that we're trusting and maybe going somewhere wonderful, but if it doesn't get you there, it doesn't matter. You can have all the good intentions in the world, but if you don't have the power to follow through on them, it doesn't matter, it does you no good, right? I had this really bad habit early on in our marriage. I say I had it, I probably still have it a little bit, but maybe it's a little bit better. But I would tell Susan all the time that I would, I would just do everything. Anything I could think of that would like help her or around the house, I would just say, oh yeah, I'll, I'll take care of that today, all the time. To the point where I literally could not do all of these things, right? I had good intentions, like I wanted to, serve her and take care of our family and all this stuff, but I was just completely foolish about my capacity and my ability to do it. And because of that, I betrayed her trust a whole bunch of times, right? I said I would do this thing and I just couldn't do it because I would literally run out of time in the day or fall asleep while I was trying to do it because I had no, no proper sense of my capacity and my limits, right? So if God's like that, we're in trouble. If God is like me, we are all in bad shape. Abandon ship, leave now, go somewhere else, right? We shouldn't be here doing this. 
Thankfully, God is not like me, right? Paul tells us that we don't have to fear that sort of thing when it comes to trusting Jesus because of the power of God. And really, like, over half of this passage is just this, just expounding on the power of God. There's any word Paul can think of to make it big and great and grand, he uses. He's, oh, yeah, let's throw that one in there and throw this one in here. And just, he's trying everything he's got. He's emptying the toolbox to give you a big view of the power of God and to let you know that he is fully able to deliver on what he's promised and that nothing can threaten what you're promised because of his power. And this is particularly important because if you guys remember, we talked about this at the beginning of the series, the culture in Ephesus was all about power, right? They were obsessed with magic, right? They were deeply aware of demonic powers. They were all about spells and incantations and trinkets to, to give them power or to protect them from powers that would threaten them and oppose them. All right, this is the magic capital of the world, Ephesus was at this time. And they were also very well aware of political power as well. They were a big, important city, but they'd been under conquest for hundreds of years at this point. First by Persia, then Greece, and now Rome, right? So they very power dominated Ephesians' life, life in Ephesus, right? And most of their life was oriented around how to get power, maintain power, protect yourself from powers that would want to hurt you. And so it makes all the more sense why Paul would lean so heavily into this, right? Because that's the first place the Ephesians are gonna go. It's like, okay, that's a great inheritance. Now, how do I protect this, right? Because there's all these other powers out there. Who, who else do I need to appease, right? Who else do I need to bring in to make sure I keep this thing safe? Right? We know from Acts that the Ephesians kind of, the believers kept doing their magic for a while because they had a hard time trusting that the power of God alone was enough to keep them. They hedged their bets. And this whole section is Paul reminding them, like, you don't need to hedge anything, right? There is nothing else added or needed, right? So he adds all these descriptors. I'm going to read that section of the passage again so we can just kind of feel what Paul's trying to say to us, right? It says that you may know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us. Immeasurable greatness power, right? According to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So he just goes into all these things to describe the power of God. It's great, it's beyond measure. It's used for us, right? But he doesn't just stop it, just kind of giving us adjectives, right? It's the greatest and bestest and mostest. He doesn't stop with that, right? He gives us this picture. He says, hey, this power's just not this idea that it's really awesome and it's out there. He's like, no, you, this power has already, you've seen this at work. Look at Jesus, right? This power, this power that keeps you and guards you and makes sure you get to that inheritance, the power that raised Jesus from the dead, that is the same power that be, is being brought to bear to save you and to bring you to that inheritance. That is the exact same power, no less. The very power that raised Jesus from the dead is working to keep you and to protect you and guard you so that you will reach that inheritance. The same power that ascended Jesus and sat him at the right hand of God, ruling over every authority, the political ones 
and the spiritual ones, now in the age to come, that same power is at work toward you. God's saving intent is met with immeasurable, unmatched, peerless power to deliver on it, right? And it's not just that that, that power will be ours. This is the, the beauty of understanding the Christian life. You have to understand union with Christ. This is like the whole key to understanding the Christian life. Through faith, we are actually joined in Christ. So us receiving this inheritance is not a theoretical thing. We were joined with Christ in his death. We died to sin already when Jesus died at Calvary. When Jesus rose on that Sunday, we rose. We are joined to him by faith. It is not even something that we are waiting for in the future. It has been done, right? So we're not even called to trust, yeah, there's a great power and we're gonna see it someday. No, that power has already been exercised on your behalf. What is needed to get you safely to that inheritance has already been accomplished. There's nothing left in doubt or in question at all. It's all done. This is what Paul's getting at when he he talks about at the end of this passage, when he talks about Jesus as the head of the church and we're his body and we're the fullness of him who fills all in all. Jesus died, paid for sin, rose, ascended, and rules and reigns at the right hand of God. We do too. We just don't experience its fullness, yes, but it is done because we are joined to Christ. Right, so given all of that, right, given the riches of the inheritance that that is ours, given the power of God that protects it and guards it and takes, there's no downside risk. There's nothing to lose. It seems like trusting Jesus would be easy. Right? It seems like this should be the most natural thing in the world to do. Right? This is like putting money into Amazon in the year 2000 when you know what's going to happen. Right? Yeah, just empty the bank account. Put it in there. Right? There's, you can't lose here. Right? But it's not. It's not. This whole thing is a prayer asking God to let them see this. Help them to understand this because this is hard because the world around us tells us a different story. You come here and I preach this to you for 40 minutes and then you're out in the world for 168 hours getting preached something else. Right? It tells you that you don't have a sure hope, that you don't have a rich inheritance in Christ and that his power is not that great. It tells you that you have to find what is promised in the gospel for yourself in order to be okay. We are bombarded with that day in, day out, hour after hour, from the world, the devil, and our own flesh tells us this all the time. So it is hard. There's a reason Paul is imploring God so deeply to help them hold on to this and help them to see this. Because when we look at the world around us, you can't look at the world and understand this inheritance. Right? You, can't, you can't find the prettiest view they'll ever see and it won't communicate this to you right? It won't. This is something that the Spirit of God has to, has to burn onto your heart and your soul if it's going to hold up to everything else that gets thrown at us out there, right? So the world tells us, no, this is not yours in Christ. You need to make yourself okay. You need to find it somewhere else. So it points us to a whole bunch of leaky boats, right? We're on the dock. There's Jesus, and there's all these other boats, 
And so we just keep trying them, right? We try out our own self-righteousness, our performance. I'm a pretty good guy, I'm better than those people over there, maybe this one will work. And we get in, and it leaks, and it sinks, and we end up flailing around in the water, right? So that one doesn't work, but maybe, maybe we can get enough achievement, and, and maybe we flourish enough in school or in work or whatever field we're in. Maybe that, maybe that'll be enough. Maybe I'll be okay. That sinks too. Maybe it's our family. Maybe it's how good of a son or daughter or father or mother or spouse we are. Maybe that's enough, right? Like, not everything else is perfect, but I'm a great husband. I can hang my hat on that. That sinks too. That will not make you okay. Maybe it's your physical health and comfort. Maybe you spend your whole life trying to make sure that you stay healthy, that you live, that you, you keep up your appearance and that you can, you can keep going, right? That won't work either. Maybe it's chasing temporal pleasure. Maybe it's having the right political structure in place. Maybe that will make you okay. None of it does. None of it does. It all sinks and you're not flailing around in the water, right, as it disappoints you. We hope they deliver what we need, but they can't do it. And what that also does is it distracts us, right? It keeps us obsessed with ourselves, right? We're never okay, and so all of our energy, all of our time is spent trying to be okay, testing out boats, trying to swim, everything. We become spiritual narcissists, staring at our belly buttons, right? We don't have time for anybody else except as a stepping stone or something we can use to feel better about ourselves, right? If you are not finding your justification in the absolute righteousness of Christ, you're going to look for it in comparative righteousness with other people, which turns the other people's failings into something you rejoice in, because at least you didn't do that, so you can feel good about yourself for five minutes, right? It turns all of our relationships into really, even if they don't look like it on the surface, really relationships of animosity, because we have to use people to be okay for ourselves. Right? This is why I waited to come back to love till now. Right? Because you can't actually love people until you really trust Christ and you find all that you need in Christ. That is what frees you. Right? It's, like you got re- it's like retiring. I have everything I need. I don't have to work for it. I have this time now that I can do stuff with. Right? Once you are okay, once Christ makes you okay by giving you his righteousness, like, there's nothing left for you to do. There's nothing left for you to chase to be all right, so what do you have time to do now? You can look at other people, and you know what? You can actually love them because you don't need to exploit them anymore and use them to feel better about yourself, right? And we're only free to do that because of the work of Christ, right? It's the finished work of Jesus, and resting in that is what allows us to actually love each other, right? That's why these things are related, right? And that's why, that's why God cares so much about his church being a place where people are loved because the whole rest of the world is out there. They're trying to be okay, using each other up, burning each other to try to be all right. If they look in at a church where people are genuinely loving each other and not exploiting each other, that's not gonna make sense to them, right? They're gonna have to try to be like, how can they do that? Because I'm not okay enough to do that. I've got to use all these people to be okay myself. How can, they, how can they be that free, right? It ultimately points them back to Jesus, right? This is why Jesus said, they will know you're my disciples by the way that you love each other, 
right? That love can only come from resting in the perfect, finished, complete, unimprovable work of Jesus. So church, this is, this is what we're about, right? This is what I pray for us all the time, right? That we would be people that rest and depend completely and wholly on the work of Jesus, right? And I know how hard that is. I know how hard it is for me every day and how much I need you guys to remind me that that is all I need, that I can't add to it, that I don't need anything else, that everything I do try to add to it will fail, right? We need each other to be reminded of that, right? And then I need you guys to be able to love you and for you to love me. Like this is what God has for us in the world as Christians now. He frees us so that we can love each other and care for each other, right? Galatians says, bear each other's burdens and fulfill the law of Christ, right? That is what he has freed us for. That's our privilege and what we get to do. So all of this really points us to is that like the Christian life cannot be an individual thing. We need a church. We need a church. We will not be able to trust and rest in Christ consistently without people to speak the gospel to us from the outside when we miss it. And we certainly cannot live the life of freedom that God's called us to do, because that freedom equals loving each other. And you need in each other to love, right? So that's what we are about as a church. There will be lots of other things that come up, lots of other things we could chase and pursue. We are gonna be dogged in this. This is what we do period, right? And it's not something that we'll be able to hang our hats on, like, look, we did it. Just like Paul is pleading with God to give that church what they need to do it, we have that same kind of dependence, right? We can so easily slip into so many other things, into trusting so many other things, and loving so many other things if God does not keep us, if he does not allow us to deeply understand and grasp what he's praying for this church to deeply understand and grasp. So this needs to be our prayer, just as it was Paul's for the Ephesians, this needs to be our prayer for ourselves. Like, God, help me, help my brothers and sisters really comprehend all that they have in you. That is what we need. And we have a good father who loves to give good gifts to his kids. He wants to do that for us. That's a prayer, a prayer we can pray with full confidence, right? All right. One of the beauties is that God's given us things to help remind us, and one of those is the Lord's Supper that we get to take every week, right? This is one of the things that he has given us to do just this, to communicate to our hearts and our souls that what he has done is for sure, right? That we can rest and trust that that inheritance that is promised is in fact ours and he will get us there. That's what this meal is all about. It is given to us to sustain us and to keep us as we live life in this world until we get to that place where we get to fully taste that inheritance. It's a meal for remembering, right? For taking this good news that we've heard preached and how God uses the supper to drive it deeper into our souls, right? Because he knows we're weak. He knows we doubt. We know he's, he knows we struggle to hold on to this. So he gives us means of grace like this. So we're gonna partake of this now as a church. This is a meal for those who are trusting and resting in Christ. If, if it's not you today, um, that's fine. Don't partake. We don't want you to be confused and to think that this does something that it does not. Uh, I'd love to talk to you about it. So grab me afterwards. I'd love to connect about that. But this is a, this is a family meal.
for those of us who are resting in Christ. As we sing, we'll start here on the left, and you can go back and grab a cup, the bread and the wine are stacked together, uh, and then come back, sing, or come back up and lead us through that meal, uh, and let God minister to us again through, through the gift of his, his communion. So let's stand and sing, and we can go back and get the elements.